What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. This time we're talking to Ben Preston. He is a fellow Cornellian and fellow entrepreneur, and we're going to be talking about a lot of exciting things. Ben, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So why don't you just give listeners a quick background on who you are, where you're from, and what you're up to? Yeah, so um, like you mentioned, fellow Cornellian. Um, when I was at Cornell, I kind of bounced around a couple different majors, didn't really know what exactly what I wanted to do. Somehow I started back then like working on startups. So I don't really know how it happened. Maybe you know, I saw other people like doing this and like, Hey, I can do this too. Um, ended up for like a summer moving out to California to be like part of this, like incubator, the Y Combinator incubator. My friend had basically founded a company and invited me to be a founder as well. Cause he knew I was really interested in this stuff and kind of learned the ropes of how this was done. Um, I ended up after Cornell working in finance for like a couple of years. I think, you know, Brennan, I'm sure you have a lot to say about this, but I think at Cornell, like specifically, there's just such a it's almost like a magnetic pull to Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Like, even though I think I kind of liked startups better and I had this experience and I had these connections and like, I don't know, it was kind of like all of my friends were going to Wall Street and finance. I'm like, oh, I should probably do that too. And it was good because, you know, like startups, especially in the beginning, you might not make a lot of money. So at least that was a good way to kind of get on my feet, get a little independent and like save some money that I could do uh, work on things later. Um, but, you know, very quickly, very early on, maybe after working there a year or two, when that initial excitement wore off, I'm just like, like, I don't really want to do this for the rest of my life. This is like not, um, you know, one thing that really struck me when I was working at Amex was just like my favorite parts of every year were like the two weeks I was actually not working at Amex and I'm like, so <laughs> nice. Yeah, became pretty clear to me. Yeah, that definitely says um, a lot. Want- For those who maybe not, um, who aren't familiar with the Y Combinator, could you talk a little bit about what that is and what your experience was like? You know, uh, Paul Graham is also a Cornellian. Yeah, um, and a lot of exciting startups yes. like uh, Airbnb, for example, came out of the Y Combinator. So. What could you, if you could talk a little bit about that whole what the Y Combinator is, and then also would love to hear as a follow up, kind of like your how you went there instead of Wall Street, at least initially in your career. Yeah, I mean Y Combinator. I almost want to call it like maybe this is a bit of a cliche, but it's basically like the Harvard for startups. I mean, it really just is like if you're like you know basically if you want to see what's going to be a giant company in like five years look at whoever is like participating in this Y combinator incubator right now and what they really do is they invite really young really small businesses to come join them you usually move to mountain view um for like or like silicon valley area for a couple months either during the summer or the winter they give you like a little bit of capital they give you a lot of connections and they really just mentor you on how to start a company and i think my biggest takeaway from like y combinator is really like 
starting a company is a specific skill set. And they're masters. I think when I was there, like, Paul Graham was really hands-on in the program. So I actually remember, like, you know, our team was mentored by Paul Graham, which nowadays is, like, so crazy because, you know, Airbnb is now, like, such a giant company. But, you know, back then, they're just like, hey, like, I remember meeting with Airbnb, and they're just like, hey, you should check out this company. They're kind of cool. Um, <laughs> oh, this wow. is like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. this is back in... This is back in like 2010. I'm like, oh, this is like kind of an interesting idea. I don't know if it's going to take off. Um, <laughs> yeah, forty billion dollars later. Yeah, I mean, I remember going to their loft in San Francisco, and like they were actually one of the first users for the product we were doing, and like getting their user feedback. I'm like, oh, this is like a really unique idea. And then, yeah, forty billion <laughs> later. But I think you know the thing for Y Combinator is like starting a business is a skill, and the best way to start a business, without a question, it just surround yourself with people who know how to do it and who have that experience and who've done it before. Um, I think that like experience and that mentorship is what sets Y Combinator apart and what sets really like every other good incubator apart. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And uh, such a, so funny you got to connect with the Airbnb guys, uh, yeah. you know, when they're not out doing capital raises uh, for their billions of dollars, they're giving keynote talks at, you know, different entrepreneurship events. Just to talk, to follow up on your point, though, about how starting a business is in and of itself kind of its own skill set. I couldn't mm-hmm. agree more. And, you know, one thing just from my journey that might help listeners also is, I kind of knew that I was very passionate about the startup or entrepreneurship world. And when I was leaving investment banking and go, and looking at different hedge funds, um, I had the opportunity to work for a few different ones. And most of them were very big. You know, I was working at Lazard. I had the Cornell background. And but one stood out to me that was even more interesting. And it was a guy only a couple years older than me and he was alone and he had only like a few million dollars in capital, which is like really peanuts in hedge fund world. And, but he gave me the opportunity to come on and be the first outside employee, the number two guy at the fund. And I was like 25 years old. I had never worked at a hedge fund in my life. I mean, other than like trading Apple in my personal account, I had <laughs> no idea what I was doing. And you know, but my experience there was like very, um, you know, twofold. Like the first piece was learning how to invest and be a hedge fund professional. But the other piece that was probably way more important and very interesting to me is like how to actually build a business and, mm-hmm. you know, sales, marketing, you know, what are your uh, strategies for like hiring and payroll and just like everything that ironically had nothing to do with a hedge fund, um, but that I learned and that I've now been able to take with me and apply to, you know, other fields. Like right now, my business, which is more like I'm an online course creator and I have a podcast and content creation, but it's all those aspects of like creating a business that I learned from that hedge fund and that you probably learned from, you know, your experiences in the Y Combinator. Exactly. I mean, I think it's really interesting, like when you go, so like right now, you know, every city around the world, and we both love travel, like every city in the world wants to be like Silicon Valley, you know, I'm like the Silicon Valley of China or the Silicon Valley of Latin America. Like this is like the goal of every um, country or city. But, you know, it's like when you actually, I was actually, I know we were both just in San Francisco, but like when you actually go to Silicon Valley or San Francisco, it's no surprise, right, that like so many of the biggest, most successful companies are there. And it's nothing secret. It's just that, you know, the people who've done it before with so much experience, you know, you're surrounded by mentors, you're surrounded by people who have answers to your questions. So, I mean, it really does, like, I think people, you know, have this idea that, um, you know, anyone can start a business, which is totally true, but it's just like, 
you know, you're without the help of those around you, you know, you're like a thousand steps behind someone who's actually like has a really good mentor or has really good connections or has done it before. Yeah, no, that's, so that, that's a great reminder because the other thing that you jog my memory of as you were sort of giving your background for the listeners is how important it is to really like surround yourself by people who the, either people you want to be or people who have already done what you're trying to accomplish. You know, I talk a lot about, you know, in my po- other podcasts and videos that I make on YouTube, how important it is just in general life to like surround yourself with the right type mm-hmm. of people. And, you know, when we were both at Cornell and we're surrounded by guys, we're all going to wall street and all, you know, fraternity scene. And <laughs> I think we're, we're probably both guilty of that in some respects, but you know, right now when I'm thinking about my personal or professional goals, I'm really focused on surrounding myself with mentors who are almost always like are already where like if I set a goal that I want this, I look for people who are already there and I just hang out with them and it's like osmosis in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so so you're talking about your experience. You worked in the Y Combinator. You were um, at American Express doing finance for a little bit. And then, you know, fill us in on what you're up to now. And you mentioned there's some stuff going on with Cuba that's very relevant that's impacted your business. Yeah. So, like, very briefly, I was at Amex. I'm like, I kind of need to, like, get out and kind of do something completely um, different. So, I ended up going to business school um, in the UK. I'm just like, I want to lead, get out of my comfort zone, do something different, and have some time to breathe and, like, think about what I want to do next. Um, the work I did in England basically evolved in, like, many different ways to um, working on a travel startup. So right now I'm co-founder of this company called viahero.com and it's all about connecting travelers to expert local planners. Um, these local planners get to know, you know, is the traveler foodie? Are they a museum hopper? Are they really into art and culture or music? And they use their local insights to plan a custom itinerary um, including like our offline mobile app. Um, and right now we're really active in Cuba, Japan, and Iceland. And you know what I was uh, alluding to before, startup life is like super, super crazy because um, you know every corporate, every big company has this idea, and I'm sure you saw this in hedge funds all the time, where like, you know, you want this graph to slowly go up every month. Yeah. Or to quickly, or to quickly go up like every month. Yeah. Um, and I think like working in a small company, in any small company, you know, you quickly realize that's just like not realistic, and it's much more like a roller coaster um, than anything else. Sure. So you know, this week was a really great example. Right now, a lot of our business comes from Cuba. We're basically specialists in Cuba. Um, so earlier in the month, you know, we found out that Trump was having new or enacting new regulations that would limit the ability uh, for Americans to easily travel to Cuba. So, you know, we're like, oh my goodness, we're like a small company. We're starting to show some really nice growth and um, all so much of our business is based around Cuba. And all of a sudden, you know, we're going to be like squashed by it. So like, it was like a little bit like of a buzzkill. Like, okay, we got to figure out like alternatives and different plans. And then the regulations came out. And, you know, just through these connections I have, actually from Cornell, uh, not surprisingly, <laughs> nice. um, I was contact, I'm in contact with a travel writer from AP who was interviewing entrepreneurs um, who work in Cuba. Um, and Via Hero actually got featured in an AP article that was syndicated in the New York Times, in the U.S. News, in the San Francisco Chronicle. I mean, it must have been like in 20 to 30 like publications like across the country. So we've actually seen the biggest surge in business um, this month from that that we've had in our entire life cycle. So I think it also just goes to show like 
you know, just like if you have a goal, just keep like always pushing towards it. And you really never know, even if something on the surface might seem like a setback, you know, sometimes it ends up being like really to your benefit. Congratulations on, yeah. on going, going viral. Um, yeah. It's funny because I went to Cuba back in 2016, uh, right after Obama changed, they basically made it a lot easier to go and they had, uh, the repeal of the embargo, you know, sort of informal agreement with Raul Castro. And when, and so basically when I went down there, it was before commercial airlines were flying there, but it was also like, so I had to take some chartered plane, uh, from Tampa to, (laughs) to Havana. And it was like a 40 minute flight. It was really funny how quick it was. And when we got to Cuba, they didn't care at all. You know, they were happy to have us. They were so nice to us. It was such an amazing trip. And did I tell you about the Rolling Stones? No. Oh, this is, <laughs> this is so cool. So at the time, like this was like March 2016, the, the Stones were on tour in South America. And I think they were, going, they were doing shows in Brazil, Argentina. Um, I'm not sure where else, but... Anyway, they were down there, and they obviously have their own plane, and uh, Obama was just in Cuba announcing, like, you know, all these changes and relaxing tensions between America and, uh, and Cuba. So, like, Mick Jagger is just, like, drinking a beer with Keith Richards, and they're like, hey, guys, like, why don't we just, like, fly over to Havana and do a free, <laughs> like, do a free concert for the locals? Like, they're all stoked and this and that. So I'm literally reading a, like a blog post about how the Rolling Stones are doing a free open air concert one night only, like March 25th, 2016 in Havana at this like random field and 500,000 like local Cubans are just going to show up, no tickets, no anything. And I'm sitting next to my friend and I'm like, what three days are we supposed to be in Cuba? And it overlapped. <laughs> and we were like, boom, we're seeing the Rolling Stones. That's amazing. Was that like the moment that you're like, I need to become like a travel blogger because this is like travels too fun for these like random, these like random occurrences and things that just like work out in crazy ways. Well, it's funny you say that because I was just at the point in my career where I was, you know, still working at the hedge fund. Mm-hmm. So I worked at the hedge fund for about three and a half years before I left to start my own business, which I do now. But that was like right at the inflection point where I had just started growing my Instagram and registered my own website. And I remember having like a good heart to heart with my friend James, who actually uh, I'm going to be in, I'm like a groomsman in his wedding in a couple of weeks. Uh, but he, he works, he's still in the hedge fund world, but he knew I wanted out and he was just, he just turned to me and he's like, look, man, if you can figure out a way to just, you know, start by making a hundred K or, you know, if you can set up a clear path to six figures, like go for it. And just, I remember I had just gotten a GoPro and I was on the Molly Cohen in Cuba, uh, you know, just hanging out. And I was like, wow, maybe this could really be like my new life. <laughs> that's yeah. That's, that's amazing. I love like, you know, that realization. And the other thing I think is really interesting. There's a quote I've heard recently. I forget who said it, but basically the point is like, once you kind of do anything related to entrepreneurship, you're going to end up pursuing that the rest of your life because anything else just won't seem as fulfilling. So I think it's really interesting because, you know, I kind of got into it in college and just kind of these random connections and taking random classes. And even though I went to wall street, I ended up coming right back to it. And, you know, for you, it's like, you know, this hedge fund is kind of your introduction to entrepreneurship. And so what I always think is like, once you kind of realize it's possible, like you see someone who's doing it and you're like, Hey, I could do that. You know, they're not doing anything that I couldn't do. Yeah. I think like, you know, that's like 
usually when the light bulb goes off, I'm like this is actually like something that like nothing's stopping me but me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's uh that's that's a really good point and you know for anyone listening who hasn't gone back and watched this is sort of cliche but it's it's really true like the old steve jobs videos on youtube obviously his 2005 commencement speech at stanford um that was like just after he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer um is really moving and powerful for anyone looking for inspiration or motivation. Um, but he also has some of these other like really neat, like two or three minute videos where he's just like totally contrarian and challenging rules and pushing people to follow their passions. And it is really meaningful stuff. And so mm-hmm. the next, next question I would ask you is, you know, so, okay, so we have the motivation, you know, that, you know, you're more interested in doing something like this, um, now how do you sort of grapple with the practicality of it? Like, you know, I, you live in Boston, right? Um, yeah, I live, you know, in Bo- I live in the North end in Boston, yeah, the food center. Nice. nice <laughs> yeah. So we can talk about foodie stuff too. Um, so you live in Boston. I live in Manhattan. You know, we were both in San Francisco last week. We both love traveling, love good food. Um, so, you know, finance had its perks. Like there was yeah. steady <laughs> like, you know, I knew certainly that, does. Like I knew that every two weeks I was going to be getting my solid paycheck. I knew that I had a bonus at the end of the year. I had all these, you know, you get wined and dined and I'm sure you were taken care of, um, at American express. So for someone who's like in this, maybe they're in finance or in law or something and they hate it and they want to get out or they, they want to make it two weeks. Like, you know, how do you grapple with pursuing your passion? But on the other hand, at least in the short run, like managing that uh, capital or, you know, money, uh, hold up in the beginning. Yeah. That's a really great question. It's something I thought a ton about because, you know, I was working at Amex and probably after a year or two, I was just like, I need to like get out of here. I want to start my own thing. So I've kind of learned the hard way by failing, you know, how not to do it. So I'll give like a really quick example of like how not to be successful at starting your own company. Um, and the best, <laughs> and the best way to not be successful is have a really grand idea or vision or like this, like, you know, thing, this thing that you really want to do and say like, okay, you know, here's this like company that I want to make. I'm going to work on it like every Sunday afternoon from like five to seven, because I have a full-time job during the rest of the time. And like, I see this all the time, you know, like with friends who have, you know, full-time jobs or just like random people who talk about starting a company. They're like, yeah, you know, I'm going to like meet with a friend every Monday and we're going to try to start a company. Um, I think like, you know, it becomes so clear so quickly that like if you're working a full-time job, you have other commitments with friends and family um, that like, you know, very, very quickly the amount of work needed to actually start a company will pile up and you'll never be able to pursue anything. And this is where you get people like doing these side projects. I'm going to start a blog and they do it for two months and give up, or I'm going to start a company and do it for two months. What I think is a really good way to actually go about that is being super narrow and specific about a, like a goal that you want to achieve that could eventually become part of like a larger company. So I assume with your background, you know, an example of that would be like your Instagram. Mm-hmm. So you probably didn't hit the ground running and say like, okay, I'm going to create courses. I'm going to have an Instagram. I'm going to have an email list, like all within like, you know, working on it, like while doing my full-time job, but rather you like, okay, I'm going to work on one thing and do it really, really well in my free time, test this idea out. And then, you know, if it does start getting traction, 
I mean, eventually you're going to have to make that leap from like a hobby to full time. Mm-hmm. That, no, that's that's really good advice for for anyone listening right now. I think that yeah, like when I started my business, it like you said, it started kind of as an Instagram account. You know, I'm down in Cuba uh, making videos of the Rolling Stone. That ultimately snowballed into a multi thousand follower account, and now I'm at a point where you know I'm, I'm getting paid to do posts. I'm getting free five star hotel rooms, and I said, hey, why don't I create a course teaching other people how to do this? And that's yep. where, and that gets me like now I can make thousands of dollars because it's you know a two hundred dollar course right now. I'll probably be raising the price, and you know I'm scaling that. So no, you're right. Start with something measurable. And one of the uh, coaches that I used to work with, I'm a big fan of like investing in yourself. Mm-hmm. Whether it's life coaching, business coach, therapist, like Warren, Warren Buffett always says, you know the best investment you can ever make is in yourself. So. Mm-hmm. I've always been a big fan of deploying capital, you know, for my own growth. And uh, this coach, she taught me how to do what's called SMART goals, which is SMART is an acronym. And it's like, you know, start uh, measurable, actionable, reasonable, time tested. So you can, you know, come up with something. And and I teach this in my Instagram course. And I'm going to be rolling out a course on more personal growth, whether you're setting a goal for your business or a relationship or weight loss. You know, if, if someone comes to you and says, oh, I want to lose weight. Right, you put them on a scale, you weigh them, then you take their shoes off and you put them back on the scale. It's like, oh, you lost weight, good for you. But if you say to someone instead, I want to lose 15 pounds in the next month by changing my diet and eating a salad every day uh, for lunch, and I'm going to go for a walk every day for 20 minutes. Like, you know, which is more more concrete, more reasonable to achieve? Yeah, exactly. And I was going to say, I really love your Instagram course. You know, I've taken it myself. And the thing I love it, I think it's like a perfect um, intro to starting your own business um, for anyone, really, because, you know, what I was alluding to before is what I see is like, you know, people have this idea of a startup or a company and, you know, they have this like huge grand vision and you end up, you know, unless you're working on it full time and have experience and usually have co-founders and a lot of capital, you basically just end up doing a lot of things really poorly. And what you want to do is do one thing really, really, really well. And so I love the Instagram course because it's like, okay, a lot of people out there want to be travel bloggers. So they want to have like a social media following. And to me, the way to do that is, you know, pick one really great channel like Instagram, focus, you know, 100% on that for a couple months and see, you know, you'll find out what you're good at. You'll find out what you care about. And then if you're actually able to grow that, then you can start expanding into different channels or leveraging that to make some money. But, you know, it all starts with doing like one thing really well. Yeah, no, that's really good advice. I I found that for me, the Instagram was sort of the foundation and I was able to figure out how to do that well. And that gave me a, a loyal following and audience that I then converted into email readers and, and you know, customers buying my courses and so on. So what would you say, um, what would you say that you do really well or how did you sort of find your core focus that helped guide you to becoming in, in Via Hero now? I think I think what I do really well is actually like what we talked about before is surrounding myself who are really good uh, with people who are really good at what they do. I mean, I think you saw that like very early on when I was kind of making these random connections and ended up going to Y Combinator and then, you know, everyone at Y Combinator, um, you know, Airbnb was there. Actually, when I was in that class, like I remember sitting next to 
I think, you know, one of the co-founders of Reddit and he was working on Hitmonk at the time, you know, we were like, you know, I was just like surrounded by these people who just were so good at what they do. Um, and even now, I mean, you know, my co-founder, Greg, one of the reasons I really wanted to work with him, um, is just cause you know, I saw him very, very quickly that he was ultra hardworking, really thoughtful in his approach. And I'm like, okay, this is like the kind of person who's going to push the pace and even push me to grow too. Mm-hmm. So I think like that's, um, that I think is like a huge differentiator. Uh, I would also say for anyone, you know, starting a company, um, you know, finding out what you do really well, like even if it's this one thing, like if you're really good at social media, that's an amazing skill. If you know a particular industry well, you know, that's a skill. So just like figuring it out what it is that you have to offer and really honing in on that. Yeah, and you know, just one takeaway from my experience working in my last job is, you know, our founder was an unbelievable investor, and he knew, um, you know, if you just said, if you just gave him a pool of capital, gave him a hundred million bucks, and said, you know, go deploy this, he would take all the ten Ks and all, you know, all the which are business filings for publicly traded companies, and he would go read them, and he'd do all his market analysis, and he could pick the best longs, stocks that he would want to buy and hold, the best stocks that he would bet against that he wanted to short to go down. And the guy was unbelievable. But we were saying earlier that that experience for me at the hedge fund was it's way more than just, you know, the actual investing. And it's kind of sad to say, and you know, I'm a little bit more jaded than some of the newly minted MBAs who are trying to yeah. get to Wall Street. But at the end of the day, like Hedge fund performance is really kind of embarrassing, and you know Warren Buffett always rips on uh, hedge funds, and you know I think it's something like five to ten percent, if that, um, beat the market. And for the fees that hedge funds charge, you know Tony Robbins just wrote a whole book on this about how like you should just do your own investing either in mutual funds or you know maybe a combination with some single name stocks, but. The point is, like, the best hedge funds in the world, for the large majority, like, of course, many of them have great track records, but the best ones are really the best guys at marketing. And they know how to, like, keep their investors happy. And they're obviously, like, balancing risk and preventing downside. But some of these guys, like, you know, Glenview and uh, Appaloosa, these funds were down, like, 40% in 2008, like, not hedged at all. Like, and a lot of funds blew up in 08. And then a lot of these, the guys who founded those funds, just came right back in like 2010 and got checks for a hundred million dollars from the same investors who they lost all their money and they were like, Oh no, but it's okay. Cause you know, whatever. So I think the point is in uh, this is sort of a long winded way of saying that in my past job, the founder was a great guy, so hardworking and we were ultimately able to raise a couple hundred million dollars with the help of an anchor investor and a CFO but I think it's really important in business to find whatever, if you're starting your own business or if you're joining a team, figure out what you do well, like you said, but also like figure out what you don't do well and, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and get help with that. Because like we really could have used help with marketing and sales and like positioning and messaging because the product was like money. Like in, in 2013, the fund crushed it. 2014, mm-hmm. like we were up... 21% in 2013. We were up 15%, I think, in 2014. Like, the numbers were great, but we couldn't raise money because, well, number one, we didn't have a guy full-time raising money for us, and number two, like, we needed better messaging and positivity and strategy. So I think, like, it's interesting because now I'm in a position where I think my skill is sales and marketing, 
Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to figure out, like, because I have my own business, I don't have anyone else full time with me right now. I don't have a co-founder. How do I make sure that my product is really good too? And that's always balanced. Because if you just gave me a, a full day, I would just spend it all doing webinars and networking and social media. And I'd have all these clients, but it's like, wait, I need to sell these guys something. Like, and that's kind of with the Instagram and my email list. I have all these people who want to hear what I have to say and listen to stuff. But it's like, okay, now I need to like hunker down and create products. And for me, I think outsourcing has been really helpful, you know, getting people either like part-time, you know, because like part of my weaknesses might be, um, I know how to code, but I don't know like advanced CSS. I don't know JavaScript. So like being able to like, even the other day, like with my email list, cause I'm uh, moving over to a new email list service provider and I needed someone to like write all the code for the HTML template. And yeah, I mean, I could have done that, but it would have taken me like, you know, 20 hours of coding and I found a guy uh, in India who did it for me for 40 bucks the whole thing and you know it's just like I think outsourcing it's a big thing that Tim Ferriss talks about Uh, I think Reid Hoffman founder of LinkedIn uh, all these guys talk about like figuring out what you're not good at finding people to help with that outsourcing you know can be a good way for entrepreneurs yeah, yeah, and totally. And so my role at VA Hero is all around growth and marketing, just like you. So, you know, I spend all day thinking about email marketing, ton of SEO, um, social media marketing, press, that kind of thing. And one thing I've noticed, and I would definitely give this as probably the most important takeaway, at least for me, for anyone trying to start a business, and I would love your perspective on it as well. Um, for me, it's like the quickest thing any entrepreneur will learn is that there's a huge lack of like uh, of attention in this world or like there's an attention deficit I think is like the phrase I've heard where like you think getting someone's attention and getting someone to pay attention to your product will be easy right you're like oh I spent all this time creating a great product you know like let me send it to my friends and family and everyone will like it and share it and like tell me how great I am for creating this really cool you know idea or product and usually like the first thing you always find is like you build something and no one's going to use it <laughs> so, <laughs> um, like, and so I would definitely like, you know, kind of always put growth should always be the first thing before you build anything, you know, even figuring out, you know, before you type a keystroke or if you're like physically building hardware, like figuring out, you know, who your first, I always talk about like your first 10 customers who are going to be like, literally write them down, like, like their names, how are you going to find them? Who are they going to be like, who are going to be these people that actually like, use your product first and actually help you test it out. People would be shocked um, how hard even getting a single person, even among your like friends and family, maybe your girlfriend or spouse or something, <laughs> might be the only one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really keeping that growth mindset first. So I was curious if you kind of found the same thing. Oh, absolutely. Like As you were saying that, I was resonating so well with it because, so here's what I did. I just I started by like growth hacking and, you know, I I would walk around New York City. So Emma Watson, she's a famous actress uh, who started as like Hermione Granger in the Harry Potter series and then is now like, you know, she's just all grown up and she's a big actress and she's got, uh, she either wrote a book or she's involved with, with a book that came out recently and she was in New York City and I saw her and she was on the subway just leaving this book like on random seats in the subway. And I just like gave her, yeah. I was like, are you Emma Watson and you're doing this right now? And she just like, yeah. smiles and she's like, hustle's got to hustle. Like, and that was her attitude. And I was like, well, I live in New York City. You know, there are 8 million people who live here. So I go home, I go on uh, vistaprint.com 
and I order a box of like a thousand Livestrong bracelets that say <laughs> Adventure Days, which is the name of my business. I'm sort of in the process of rebranding everything into my, under my own name, Brendan Burns. But, you know, I got these bracelets. It's got adventuredays.com on it. It's got my Instagram handle at the Adventure Days. And I'm just like leaving these all over the place. And I was like, <laughs> and yeah. I was, like go, I would get coffee with a friend and I'd like, he, I'd make sure that every friend had one on each hand. I would like leave some on the table. They'd be like, oh, Brendan, you left it. You're, you forgot your bracelet. I'd be like, no, 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 leave it there. So, you know, I, I got t-shirts made for my friends. I did all these things. And between doing that and growing the Instagram, I then started the email list. So, so I had this email list and it had maybe like, now it's probably got like 15,000 people on it. But at the time, it maybe had a couple thousand. And I was talking to my friend. I was like, you know what? I got to start making some money here. He was like, why don't you create an Instagram course? So I was like, that's a great idea. So, but I hadn't even started it yet. I just had the idea like, oh, let me create a course. And to your point about like finding the customers first, so what I did was I shot an email to my email list and I guess maybe at the time it maybe had like four or 5,000 people on it because I just wrote them an email. I was like, Hey guys, like what's up? Here's my travel update. Like I was just uh, about to go to Vietnam or something. And I was like, Oh, by the way, PS, um, in development, which wasn't true. I don't even think it was in development yet. I was like, I'm building this awesome online Instagram course, like full suite videos, workbook, you know, how to go from zero to 50 K in, in nine months like me make money on Instagram. If you're interested in being a free beta tester, just like reply to this and let me know. So I hit send, I go to sleep, I wake up the next morning and my inbox is like rest in peace. There's like uh, 200 emails. I didn't even know people were even reading my emails. It was like two, 300 people were like, Brennan, like beta tester, like give me access, sign up. And so one thing that I did that was, I think, in retrospect, really smart, I'm a big fan of social media marketing, and I think Facebook is a really powerful tool. So I actually created a new Facebook group at the time, and I said, okay, if you want the free course, you have to join this group, and we're going to share feedback in the group. And that actually created a really engaged, this this is just sort of a side point, which is I was able to create an engaged uh, online Facebook group, which is private and requires access, but once you're in it, it's really fun. Um, And now I think we have like 2,000 people in it, it's the latest numbers. So um, that's just like, that was another sort of growth hack or a little thing that worked out for me in terms of community building. So I have all these people, now they're in the Facebook group, they're all talking to each other, they're expecting my course, and I was like, I didn't even start it yet. So I, <laughs> so I was like, damn it, so I was like kicking the can. I think I was in that group. <laughs> yeah, you are probably in that group, and like everyone's in this Facebook group together, and they're talking to each other, like, I'm so excited, Instagram, boo boo, and like, they're all like, when does it come out? And I'm just like... Oh crap. So I like took my iPhone and I'm like holding it up with like a selfie stick and I'm like, Hey guys, it's Brendan and welcome to the Instagram course. And it was like really funny. Like the, you know, version 0.0, the beta test was like very much, you know, just testing things. But, but, you know, a lot of the content, the substance of it was like very good. And obviously over time I've like redone the whole thing and it's now, you know, professionally done like with a microphone and camera and, you know, screencast software. But I mean, I had to make that thing. I made it in a long weekend, you know, ver- beta version 0.0. And it just like, not only did I have the audience first, but it also like lit a real fire under me to get things going. Cause like these people were waiting for my course. So I had to get it done, but I had people like waiting for it. And so then I launched it and then, you know, I had all these people take it. 
And then, you know, and then I was like, okay, you know, even though it wasn't ready to be live by any stretch of the word, uh, Reed Hoffman, uh, LinkedIn founder famously said, if you're not embarrassed by your product, then you've launched too late. So, (laughs) so then what I did was I launched version 1.0 and, uh, I put it up live and people were buying this thing for like 199 bucks. They found me through Instagram or my blog or my podcast and, you know, once like monetary transactions were happening, that's when I like hunkered down and I hired a bunch of te- a team and like out consultants. And, you know, we spent, you know, hundreds of hours like polishing this, polishing this thing up to pretty much, you know, I, I haven't seen an Instagram course that's better than this one online. So um, I'm pretty confident that's the number one product out there for what it does. But that's just like sort of the funny evolution and story of it touching on your point of like trying to get the audience first. Yeah, and like in every um, and like in every instance, you can kind of see how you're following. So when I talked to him, you know, before about like Y Combinator and like working with Paul Graham, he taught us this idea. What I mentioned of like how to start a business, and you're actually doing like the entire time, like exactly the type of thing he was talking about. <laughs> yeah. And so you know, going back of like what not to do, the way to like not start a business is like. I'm going to create an Instagram course. Like you don't have any followers. You don't have any like credibility. Just like spend 20 hours working on a course or 200 hours working on a course and putting it out there. That will like never work. But you can see like, you know, how you were just constantly focusing on growth, iterating and getting more growth out of that. So, you know, you basically started with this like Instagram. Okay. That grew really, really well. Like what can I do next? I'll like grow this email list. Like, okay, that went really well. Okay. Next I'm going to like, use this email list Instagram combo to like create my own course. So like in every instance, you're basically following this methodology of like how to start a business. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it works. Yeah, no, thank you. I I think, you know, having the audience to sort of back it up and kind of like, and one thing I teach in the Instagram course and, and is like, you know, just building a loyal following, being personal, connecting with these people on, on a real level um, and that's like what we do in the Facebook group. Like you see how people are like, I'm not talking about meditation and we're really focused on, you know, things like what you've been able to do, which is like ditch the rat race, like pursue your passion. And when I tell my story and, you know, sh- sharing your story right now to our podcast listeners will help inspire people. And that also sort of like builds brand and builds, um, like a human connection to people where then if you, you know, suggest your product, um, very often, you know, it could really not be anything, but, you know, within the realm of something that would help them achieve their goals. Like Oprah is a great example of someone whose following is, you know, so loyal where she could really just be like, Oh, you know, and she does this with her book club, read this book and like book sales, like quintuple for that day. Cause she put it out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so it's been fun in that regard. You know, why don't we talk a little bit about travel? You know, so you're mm-hmm. so viahero.com or the Via Hero app. That's what you're working on currently. And, and, you know, that is obviously a very central travel theme. But, you know, travel is a big part of your life and your personal life, too. So, you know, I'd love to, you know, pick your brain on, on your upcoming Asia trip. But also just in general, like how did travel become, you know, interesting to you? Yeah, and it's really funny, just to bring it back to V here for one second, you know, one thing that basically every investor will say is like, don't start a travel company. (laughs) And, you know, it really goes back to this idea of like following your passion and just kind of doing what you want to do. I mean, people would say the same thing probably back in the day to like, 
Airbnb. And really, you know, the idea is like travel is super competitive. The margins can be very low. And that, especially for like American travelers, you know, maybe they're only taking one or two trips a year. So mm. it's not this like super, you know, it's not the ideal market for a startup versus like Uber, where like once you get someone hooked on Uber, maybe they're taking it every day. Exactly. Um, yeah. Higher yeah, usage. But, Exactly. But, you know, despite that, I just cared so much about this idea of, you know, making local connections and really when you go to a destination, having that experience that you really want. I mean, for me, it's all around the food and like the outdoors, the beaches, the mount, the rock climbing and the hiking. Um, so, you know, it's why I really wanted to pursue it. And so for me, you know, I went through college and I hadn't really traveled that much. Actually, I actually had way too much fun in Ithaca, Cornell. Um, <laughs> yeah. hadn't, <laughs> hadn't really traveled that much. Um, you know, when I was there, it was during the Great Recession. It wasn't really a good time to like go study abroad. And you know, when I left college, I was like, okay, I'm gonna do like you know this like first post college trip to Europe. And I think like literally, it was just like London, it was Scotland, and Paris. And it was almost just like something clicked when I was there. Yeah. I don't know if it was like the first croissant I had in Paris or like my <laughs> first pint of ale in England. But, you know, right then I was like, wow, this is like more fun than like anything else I've done before. Yeah. And, you know, it was kind of that light bulb went off a little bit. And, you know, that would, you know, that didn't mean I'm going to go, I wasn't about to go live in Europe right away. But it kind of clicked where, you know, then my next vacation, I'm like, hey, let's go to um, Munich for Oktoberfest. Then my next vacation, I visited friends in Taiwan for Chinese New Year. And then, you know, very quickly, I kind of mentioned, like, you know what? I really just want to move somewhere different. So I ended up going to live in England. Mm. And going to live in England was great because um, it really opened the floodgates for me. You know, like I mentioned, same as you, you know, the one thing you notice about American work culture, you only have two weeks off. It's crazy. So, yeah, it's really crazy, right? Yeah. Um, where, you know, when I moved to England, all of a sudden, like, instead of being able to travel around Europe for two weeks, basically, like, every weekend I could go to a new city or a new place. Like, so much more became accessible to me. Mm -hmm. And that was when I realized, so this is around the time I was trying to figure out, you know, what I wanted to pursue for my next company. Uh, all I could think about was travel. And, you know, something Paul Graham always says is, like, um, what you think about in the shower is going to be the thing that you're most successful at. You know, what are you thinking about when there's nothing else on your mind? And for me, that was travel. So it was super clear that I'm like, okay, I need to do something in the travel space. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think for me, yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, just like, uh, you know, this idea of adventure, of just like connecting with people, and just kind of getting lost in a new place. I think one of my favorite places in the world is Tokyo. You know, we're talking about like why, why travel and just like yeah. being lost in Tokyo, I think is an experience that everyone should have. Mm. Oh man. Don't get me started on Japan. <laughs> we'll get off on like a three hour tangent talking about my favorite sushi counter in, uh, you know, in Tokyo, or we'll talk about going to the fish market early in the morning that's funny you say that thing it clicked for you because I, I had the same experience you know I was very fortunate to be a part of uh you know my grandparents were big travelers so they would take me on trips and to some extent international but mostly domestic and then you know but that was like around the ages of like seven or eight so like there was a seed planted but then when I got back, you know, the, the economy was bad when I was in college, too. And everyone said, oh, Brendan, you got to stay in, in 
Cornell and you got to recruit for Wall Street. And I said, screw it. And I just went abroad anyway. And I, so, <laughs> so I went to Barcelona. And yeah, like you said, I mean, first of all, you look around and you're just like, okay, um, I'm, I'm still on planet Earth, but it doesn't feel like it because, you know, for my whole life growing up in America, at least to me, it, it felt like, you know, because media is so dominated by the West, specifically the United States, and because, like, Hollywood, and because, for whatever reason, like, I was just ingratiated in me from such a young age. I felt like America equaled the world. And then, yeah. and then you go to Barcelona, and you got businessmen wearing earrings and wearing tattoos. And got- I, I love Barcelona, by the way. Like, one of my, I spent, like, many weeks there, one of my favorite places ever. Oh, yeah, it's such a cool city. And, you know, thank God they had, they had the Olympics, which, like, it, it infused a lot of capital into the city and it really had a rebirth and helped bring more awareness to the architecture of Gaudi and just how cool of a city it is. But, you know, not only is like Barcelona such a wake up call when you have, you know, these people get like one to two months off per year, they're taking siesta every day, you know, every several years they'll do a full gap year and just travel or do a passion thing. And I was just really intrigued by that way of living. And I remember, very begrudgingly coming back to the u.s like i didn't even want to come home and (laughs) and when i did i told my family i was switching majors because i was an undergraduate finance major and i told them i was switching as a senior to uh romance languages Uh, my spanish was pretty much done um because of living in spain and a pretty immersive program so I spoke English, Spanish, and I was going to do a major in like Italian and then either like French or Romanian or something. And my family like immediately like panicked and they basically like sat me down for an intervention as if I were like a heroin addict. And, <laughs> and they were like, no, you know, you need to do this. And, you know, I think that's um, I think that's the issue in our culture in a lot of ways is like family. I often think that it's really important that you have a stable job. And I think stability is important. And, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, Gary V is a guy I listen to a little bit. Uh, he's kind of like an online person. Um, he talks a lot about how, you know, cash is oxygen. And if you're going to start a business, you can't be naive and just say like, oh, my family wanted me to be a doctor. I'm going to reject that and like follow what I love. Like, of course, I, uh, you know, I'm the first person to encourage you to like follow your dreams. But, you know, the question I was sort of getting at earlier was like logistically like how are you able to get to a a startup where you know you're living in boston and you and your fiance like eating sushi in tokyo like sure did (laughs) someone's got to pay for that so i think it's like really a balance between leave the the rat race like do what you love but also like be smart about it yeah actually i think that's like the most important point and you know just to be more explicit about it it's a great question and actually it's why i think probably the number one people reason people might fail at like starting a new company and you have to be really strategic and really thoughtful. Um, I call it, how do you structure your life? So, you know, if I was still living in New York where rents are incredibly high and also in New York, you know, you go out to eat every night and you go out for drinks every night with your friends. And I was spending the same kind of money, um, living in New York and like trying to do startup, it would never happen. The early stage of the, of the company would just like uh, demolish my savings. Yeah. So, you know, you basically just like need to figure out a game plan and be really, you know, thoughtful and realistic about, you know, how much are you going to spend per month? What's your burn rate? And, you know, what is the point that, um, 
you know, who's going to be there to support you? So, you know, for me, um, one thing that's really amazing is, you know, my fiance and I have like, you know, sat down and say, you know, we're going to take everything as a couple. She's been, you know, the only reason I can really do this. You know, we support each other in everything. And, you know, this is here are our finances and here is how we're going to work on this and support, you know, this idea for the long term. So I think like, it doesn't necessarily need to be someone, you know, helping you financially Mm -hmm. um, or someone supporting you, but you do need to figure out a way, you know, if it's off your own savings, um, something like that, you need to be really thoughtful about how you're going to structure your life around entrepreneurship. Very well said. I think obviously everyone has their own different circumstances and it sounds like you're in a good situation with uh, your fiance. Um, very, very lucky, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think for me, and, and this is why I sort of encourage uh, people to, you know, do other things first. Like, I, you know, I rip on Wall Street a lot, but I think most people would benefit, you know, again, it depends on the type of person you are, but if you're a smart, hardworking person, like working in finance for a couple of years, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to, it'll help with work ethic and ideally you'll be able to save some money. You know, so for me working uh, in investment banking for a year and then a hedge fund for three years carried over tremendously into starting my own business. So I think, you know, like you said, developing the business plan and the cash flow is really important. So someone just like last weekend, I met her in New York and she's uh, starting her own coaching business and she's really passionate about it and I'm really excited for her. She's really good. But she has a, a, a day job and this is like still a side hustle for her and she's trying to figure out like, mm-hmm. you know, how do I balance my New York City apartment with, you know, but I want to quit yeah. and do this full time. And one thing I told her was like, look, you know, what's your what's your run rate? Like if you quit tomorrow, how many months could you survive? And, and she didn't know. So I think that's like step one. And again, this is like really for someone who is, you know, really going to take the big leap and do their, either their own business or something like a small startup. Um, because a lot of what I talk about too is like, it can be a progression or, you know, you don't need to obviously start your own business. Like my whole purpose in, in when I help people is to help them find happiness. And a lot of people come to me and they love the corporate lifestyle. Like my friend, he works at KKR now, which is a big private equity firm. And this guy, he, he just loves it. Like he's, anytime I see him on the street, he's in a full suit and tie with like white sneakers, it's like the, <laughs> the New York city commuter look. And he's like always going to meetings and it really no. <laughs> it empowers him. And like he, and, and I have a friend who's at a big law firm and he's, he's I'm sure going to make partner within the next couple of years. So if those guys came to me, I would coach them on, you know, how to sort of figure out ways to improve their lives within that job realm. So, like, I just want to clarify for listeners that um, I'm not saying that entrepreneurship and starting your own business is better than anything else. This is just for people, you know, who want to do this and, you know, how to maximize their strategies doing it. Um, So if you are going to take that leap, I, I built a model in Excel. You know, you want to build, obviously, the revenue and the expenses side. So I saw, like, what's my burn rate? So how long can I float myself just on a cash perspective if I quit tomorrow? And then, you know, what is my revenue model in terms of like how, how long will it take me to get to if 100K base salary is what I need to live off of, how, how long will it take me to get there? And then, you know, how long do I have cash wise before I do? And I think that's obviously something that's very important to do, you know, before you go and quit. Yeah, you bring up so many fascinating and like and great points. I have like, you know, so much to talk about. I mean, one really quickly. 
you know, one thing I see over and over again um, is, you know, I would caution people to be really, really careful. So, you know, go through those projections and then watch out for founders bias or like optimism bias. You know, yeah. you see this time and time again, yeah. particularly if you're dealing with your own cash, honestly, or your own savings. And they're like, you know what? I'll be able to make X amount of money in three months. And then, you know, two and a half months go by and you're nowhere near that goal. So just yeah. be like really, really careful with those assumptions. Number one. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, I love your point about like, entrepreneurship not being the only answer you know as an entrepreneur you know one thing i find really funny is this like cult of entrepreneurship in like the past couple of years um and i'm not really sure how it happened but you know it certainly you know has its benefits and for me you know the particular things i want out of life it actually fits my lifestyle really, really well. Mm-hmm. I love the idea that i can work and travel i love the idea i have flexibility i can you know I can spend as much time um, with my family as I need to. It's all these things that make it perfect for me. But for so many people out there, it's like not necessarily the best answer. And I even want to caveat, and this is like a lot of, like I've been talking to other friends who've been thinking about starting their own companies and say, and I always say to them, it's all like relative to, I mean, entrepreneurship could be you like starting your entirely own company or entrepreneurship could be you working with like a small company. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, like I think people discount that middle ground, you know, far too much. If you're working in a company that's five people or a company that's 10 people, you're still going to get a lot of the benefits of being an entrepreneur without necessarily having to give up so much. So I think like, you know, really focusing on that middle ground is um, something that's really important. And really quickly, the third thing um, I would always recommend to people, we talked a little bit about structuring your life just for success. You know, if I wasn't working on my startup right now, I'd probably be working at Airbnb or TripAdvisor. And the reason for that is, you know, sometimes you really just need to put your head down, save some money before you can start your own thing. But I think the way to do that is, you know, go into the area that's relevant to what you want to do. If you want to start your own travel company one day, a really good way to start is by working at a bigger travel company in marketing. You know, figure out how the travel industry works. Get some connections. Get some relevant experience, you know. So um, I think, you know, even like making that slow progress to your final goal Mm -hmm. is still like a really valuable thing. Yeah, no, I, I love all those points, but especially that third one, because for me, it's, if you're an entrepreneur, you start your own business and you have the cash model and you're like, Oh no, like I overestimated things like the way you would go work at Airbnb, the way I would go work for Tony Robbins. And I would just go through all of his training and I'd become a certified life coach and I would be, you know, he would just be getting a commission, but I'd be doing like relatively the same thing and I'd be saving money and then I'd be able to biz- build my business on the side. Like, you know, in my, in my worst case scenario, I work for a Tony Robbins or a Teachable or some kind of, you know, online business, something like very aligned with what I'm doing. And the, the best part about guys who work in these companies is like they're open about their side hustles. They don't hide, yeah. have to hide their own businesses because like it's that Google mentality of like, you know, the 10% or 20% where you can work on your own stuff. And that may not be the best example because I think Google still owns the IP over there. Yeah, but the, the point here. Yeah, yeah. But, but the point of like just being not like in finance, 
every like not everyone but a lot of people don't like it and they all have these like secret exit plans but they're not allowed to like share them with anyone because then they'll get fired immediately whereas there's a guy i know he works at an email marketing company and like he openly has his own side hustle and like everyone knows about it and they think it's really cool and he's like found a way to merge the two a little bit so um that that's just an interesting point and uh i forgot what, what were the other things you said i had something to say to all of them um, the first one was optimism bias. So basically, you know, and I was definitely yeah. guilty of this myself as, you yeah. know, I was like, Oh, I've saved all this money. I'm going to be able to achieve this many users in this many months. And then like inevitably from that reason before we talked about how hard it is to grow or how hard it is to get users. It's almost always 10 to a hundred times harder to grow your business than you think it will be when you start. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then the second one, yeah, yeah the second one was, was this idea of like, entrepreneurship being all like levels or relatives. So we always glorify this idea of like Mark Zuckerberg in his like dorm room, like starting Facebook. But you know what? Being like employee 30 at Facebook would probably like have just as many benefits without like, you know, so much of that risk. So, you know, it's not necessarily like giant corporation, like you saw with your hedge fund, like it's not giant corporation or do something by yourself. There is this like entire middle ground of like newer startups and small companies. Yes. I wanted to respond to that point, which is an excellent one by saying that, and this sort of ties in with what I was saying earlier about, you know, entrepreneurship isn't the answer. It's about doing what you love. There are a lot of people out there and a lot of my followers and probably people listening to this uh, podcast episode who work in jobs that are very, you know, very structured, very corporate America, you know, two weeks vacation. And if you take all two, you know, you're going to get a bad review for it. Craziness. And one thing that I think is so important that most people don't understand initially is that small tweaks in your career to another job that may still be under the umbrella of corporate America, but in a better culture can be such a better fit for people. And it's rarely about the money and it's often about the prestige of leaving. And that was my experience from leaving the hedge fund. The funny thing about the hedge fund was in like a good year, I would clean up and get a good bonus and the whole thing. But there were, I had more bad years than good years and I wasn't making that much more. And I'd very often be making less than people who were like, Oh wow, you work at a hedge fund. And like, and I craved that because I was insecure and I, you know, identified on Brendan Burns as someone who works at a hedge fund in a very unhealthy way. And that's taken some personal growth to work through that. And so I think a lot of people are more afraid of what others are going to think of them. And I would encourage you to explore that and do personal growth around that to figure that out. Because the the lawyer who makes 200K versus the guy who makes like 120 or 150 in-house at a company that he loves where he's working nine to five instead of nine to 1 a.m. And, you know, I have a friend who did this. And he went from the big law life that he hated to working at a company that he's much more passionate about in an area of the country. Uh, He's on the West Coast now, and he loves it there. And it's funny because not only does he have a much better setup, much better hours, better culture, better team, um, everyone sort of, like, judges him. uh, Not everyone, but, like, some of his, like, some people do because they think he makes less. He's actually making, like, I think double of what um, he was making in, in a big law firm because he's at a very successful company now when he's like in-house legal there so i thought that was really funny that you know he left to pursue a passion for the take the money hit and now he's even making more money because it's what he loves 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's like a constant like thing I see all the time. Like once you actually start doing what you care about, you kind of like instantaneously work harder because you actually like like what you're doing. Like you know, when I'm not working on my travel company, I'm actually listening to travel podcasts like this one, yeah. or I'm reading like the Points Guy in my free time. Yeah. So like no matter what I do, like the the line between like actually like working and like doing research is so blurred at this point anyway. And it you know once you do what you care about. Um, you're just kind of like are better at it naturally. So I think that's a really great point. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, it's been about an hour. So why don't we take this time to wrap up and just let listeners know, you know, we've mentioned Via Hero. If you could spell it out, tell people where they can find you. Yeah, so uh, it's Via Hero, um, V-I-A-H-E-R-O.com. You can uh, look that up or just pop it into Google. We're really focused right now on planning trips to Cuba, Japan, and Iceland. We have a ton of really great experts and locals who will provide you for the best trip. Um, starting at, It's like um, starting at just $25 per day of trip planning. Um, and eventually, you know, we're looking to expand further in South America and more in East and Southeast Asia. Maybe one day Europe too. Um, who knows? <laughs> um, and yeah, if you have any questions on SEO, entrepreneurship, starting your own company, feel free to email me um, then at viahero.com. Awesome. And so, so when you say they, they plan the trip for you, like how hands-on is that? Like, can I just book flights and then I'm done or do we work together and you help uh, set up itineraries, but like I also take an active role as a customer? Yeah, so usually, and it kind of depends what you want, but really the way it's going to work is we're going to make recommendations for things that anything that requires a credit card. So we're not going to like make flight bookings for you, but you know, we'll give you like, hey, here are the, here are the three best flights from New York to Tokyo, mm-hmm. like and send you those links. And then anything that doesn't require a credit card, we will help you make the bookings. And you know, you know, in Tokyo, this can be very valuable unless you're staying at like a high-end hotel with a concierge. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really hard sometimes to like make bookings for restaurants in Tokyo. And what the local will do, um, you take like either a little quiz or you tell the local, you know, what you're interested in. So if I was using the service and I'm going to Tokyo, I basically say like, okay, you know, pretty simple. I'm like, maybe I've never been to Kyoto before. I'm a foodie. I love like anything that's been featured in like a food travel show or like Anthony Bourdain or something like that. I definitely want to go to. I want to hit up some like really ultra local places where I don't see any other travelers. And I'd really love to like supplement that with maybe some rock climbing or some hiking or some outdoor activities and maybe like a little bit of sightseeing, you know, maybe the most important or the most interesting things. The hero will basically put everything in our app, which you can get on the computer and offline. It comes with maps that work without data. Um, and for an extra fee, you can actually have real time, um, communication support with your hero as well. So if you're in Kyoto and something happens and you need a little feedback, you can text them or call them. Um, all of that is available for just $25 a day. That's so cool. Um, yeah. everyone check it out. And I love how the example you gave is you and me. Um, yeah. <laughs> a lot of food, hidden stuff, outdoor activities, and like the one museum that I have to go because I'm in the city. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I usually go to museums between meals. I'm sure the same way. I'm like, uh, I have like three hours to kill, kill. Like I just ate lunch. I have like three hours to kill before I can go to like my conveyor belt sushi. So I might as well see something. <laughs> yeah, and the other funny thing is like doing the activities 
is I met a guy. So uh, Sushi Yasuda is a restaurant in New York City, and Chef Yasuda moved back to Tokyo to run his own counter, which I ate at last fall with my friend Dan. And we sat next to another American guy at the counter. And he was telling us how he was only in Tokyo for like four days. And as I'm sure you know, there's like well over a hundred Michelin star restaurants and that ignores all like the hole in the walls. And like, I, I think Tokyo is the best foodie city in the world. Totally um, agree. Yeah. And it's, he said that he was doing this sushi dinner at 6 PM and that he was going to like w- go for like a long run and do like push ups on the street. Cause he wanted to be hungry for his 9 PM dinner. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was like, dude, I totally get what you're saying. And you got to, take advantage while you're here because you know the 14 hour flight and 12 hour time difference so i mean for me you know one of the reasons for starting this company was all about like i think you see it so much for everyone but particularly in our generation this idea of just like optimizing everything you know we want to optimize our travel points we want to optimize you know what seat we get on the plane and once we land there we want to make sure like every experience we have is perfect you know everything needs to be timed out you want the best sushi place, like the ultra local hidden gem. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you want to know that like, Hey, by the way, there's like a speakeasy in this hotel right next to the sushi bar. So for us, it's really all about those like kind of hidden connections that you just like can't really find on TripAdvisor or Yelp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's such a, and what I like about the business model is that when you focus on one city, cause I know a girl who is building a business like this, uh, focused exclusively on Italy. Um, if your focus is Cuba or Havana or Vinales, uh, another city in Cuba, you know, you you develop those relationships, which you can leverage. So it's like over time, you don't have to do more work because it's like you, you have the foundation built and you, you build that know-how of the local area and your product will ultimately just continue to get better over time. I would imagine. Yeah, that's exactly what we're seeing. We actually, um, you know, had someone recently say like, you know, I was in Iceland and actually like I, the places you sent me to weren't listed anywhere. Yeah. And it makes sense, right? Because like we have people in Iceland, like actually like coming up with this stuff. So like, unless you happen to be able to speak Icelandic or read Icelandic, yeah. you're not going to know about it. Yeah. So cool. Okay. So we're back actually, because we were still talking and Ben was asking me about my trip to Southeast Asia. So you were, you want to know what my experience was like in Thailand, specifically Bangkok, and then Singapore as well, especially as it relates to food? Yeah, so really, you know, like two or three things come to the top of my mind. Bangkok is a super interesting place because every person I ask about Bangkok gives me like a complete opposite answer. It's either like people love Bangkok or they're like, don't go there. Two, just like, you know, Thailand and Singapore in general, I've kind of always wanted to go to these places. So, you know, any advice you've had there. And then three, just in general, while I'm in the region, like, you know, I'm going to be in Thailand, I'm going to be in Singapore. Should I go to India? Should I go to Cambodia? Like any other amazing places, you know, especially the fact that I'm going to be by myself and backpacking that you think I should go visit. Oh man, I could talk about this (laughs) for hours. I've been to India twice. I've been to Singapore. I've been to a lot of these places. I have an Instagram influencer poke bowl tasting at three. So we, <laughs> that's a good life, man. That's a life. <laughs> yeah, man. It's just like another Friday. All right. Southeast Asia. I'm so excited for you, man. Okay. So I'm in the love Bangkok camp. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's a love hate thing for sure. 
Here's what most people say. They say go to Thailand and spend a couple days in Bangkok and then get the hell out of there and either go to the north for Chiang Mai or go to go down to the yeah. islands. Um, I would recommend if you have time, you can do both. It's funny because I actually spent the majority of my big trip to Southeast Asia not in Thailand. So I did about a full week in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And then I spent time at Angkor Wat, which is in Cambodia. I then went to Laos. Um, some people in America call it Laos. Uh, I went to Myanmar. And then I ended in Bangkok for a couple of days. I'm definitely going to put you in touch with the hotel that I stayed in. I think it's called the Grand uh, Sathorn um, or Easton Grand Hotel Sathorn. They, they comped my stay in exchange for Instagram uh, coverage. So um, I, I can definitely introduce you to them. Cool. So here's what I loved about Bangkok. It almost reminded me of like a poor man's Tokyo. Mm. Um, like I, I got off the, you know, huge airport, you take the train, like direct, like the light rail, you get right off and I'm at the hotel, beautiful hotel, infinity pool, everything's super modern. And it may have just been like a saving grace. Cause I was like slumming it. I was up in Bagan, Myanmar, and it was like 104 degrees with no <laughs> air conditioning. Um, so it was kind of like a savior at the end of my trip a little bit. But, you know, the food in Bangkok is just unreal. Like, some of my favorite things were uh, you go to the MBK Center. I'm just looking on the map right now. I mean, um, I'm just going to write these down as well, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Go to, go to the MBK Center. There's a food market outside that's ridiculous. And I get this, like, fresh mango smoothie. It's literally just mango and ice, like, right off these uh, – Thai trees or however mangoes grow and it's like it's the equivalent of like 70 cents for this like massive thing that would be like 12 dollars in new york city and you know then this woman is making these like fresh hand rolled spring rolls and they're like the size of like a baseball bat and she has like scissors the size of my head and that's how she's cutting the spring roll like a almost like a you know 10 foot hero oh, that sounds so good i have these pictures i think some of them are on my instagram but I, I would recommend those. I'd recommend uh, going to like any rooftop at night for drinks to see the Bangkok skyline. Um, there's a place called Terminal 21 that I would definitely write down. Um, it's a mall that sort of consolidated a lot of the, the best food, food trucks and food carts in Bangkok. And you can just go in and it's like a free-for-all. Like I would go starving and then you can hang out, you can eat, you can shop, you can eat more. Um so I would definitely, definitely go to Bangkok. You know, as far as the islands go, that's where research comes in because, like, my – so I didn't go to the islands, but my friend did. Uh, Koh Lanta, for example, is, like, a more relaxed island. Koh Phi Phi, which is spelled mm-hmm. uh, P-H-I, uh, is more of, like, a party island. So that's, like, depends on do you want to be on a beach, and if so, like, what kind of beach do you want to be on? Then the north, I've heard, is, like, more authentic, and I would surmise is, like, similar to, like, when I was in Laos and in parts of Vietnam, which are, like, more, you know, less touristy and, like, less, like, developed. You know, my one of my favorite places, you know, if you can find a flight and if it makes sense with your itinerary, is Luang Prabang, which is a, <laughs> which is a city in Laos. And from a food perspective, I found it to be some of the best food that I ate on my entire, like, month-long trip. They have this night market 
that is ridiculous and you go and there's like there's two things you have to do if you if you go to this night market one they have these coconut pancakes that are oh that sounds so good (laughs) and you get like a whole bag of them for like a dollar or something or 50 cents maybe and so you go you get a bag of these coconut pancakes and you walk up and down the stalls and you look at all the the stores then um you come back to where the market starts and you go in and there's uh, these. There's like three buffets, and one is like amazing. And for a dollar fifty, you get a bowl, a huge bowl, and it's all you can fill. And it's, it's like it was like the highest, some of the highest quality, best street food that I've had in my life. And and you can, it's all you can eat. So like I went there every night for my three nights in this city, and I had dinner there for the total was less than five dollars for three full dinners. <laughs> But it was like I didn't even go there because it was cheap. Like the food was also just unbelievable. Um, then I went to this random restaurant, and it was like it was like three in the afternoon. And I was like, "Is it open?" And the owner is just like sleeping on the floor of the restaurant because no one's in there. And I had to like hit him with the broom to wake him up. Um, so like, so Lao is just really cool. Like I really liked Luang Prabang a lot. Um, Singapore is like is very different. You know, Singapore is almost like a Hong Kong, you know, obviously it's, mm-hmm. all, it's a lot smaller. Um, but Singapore is like, you know, total first world, like completely like modernized. Like, you know, I would say Bangkok is closer to Singapore than Laos and certainly Vietnam. It just sort of depends on like, you know, how grungy you want to get like, like that also, then we can have like a complete and total conversation just about Vietnam. Like I went sort of down the coast starting in the north in Hanoi and Vietnam, like, you know, I get like really emotional. Like I really miss Vietnam. Like it's, it's such a warm, special country and the people are just, mm-hmm. it's amazing. But like personally, like I found the food to be a little difficult to find like reliable, clean food. Like you have to be more mm. careful. Don't get me wrong. Like when you find the right Bon Me place, uh, like the place that I posted on my Instagram, it's called Bon Me Twenty Five. It was the best Bon Me I had in my life. I had six Bon Mees and during my three days in Hanoi. But you know, there's also like you know, you can be in a place and it's like you know, okay, is this clean? Can I eat this kind of thing? You're not in like Rome where you can go to anywhere or just like grab anything off the street. Yeah, it's, you gotta not, be careful. Exactly. Like in Singapore. You don't even have to blink. You can like literally eat off the sidewalk in Singapore. Like, it's I so think cool. I'm gonna eat. I think I'm basically going to Singapore. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, I'm, I'm gonna do like a little bit of a digital nomad thing. So I like Singapore because I'll have my internet on my computer and really just going there to eat all the food in Singapore. Yes. Um, yeah. So here's the thing for Singapore. I wrote up back when I was a travel blogger. So just Google Adventure Days Singapore, or I can send you the link. And just click on the food button. You'll see everything that I wrote about. But my favorite in Singapore was this the Changi or Changi Village, which is on the north tip of the island. So you can just take a bus from wherever you are there. And go there and get the chili crab, which is like their famous dish. And Sounds so good. <laughs> yeah, and just look at the picture. It's insane. But then what you do... Um, is you then take this little ferry. It's like a five-minute ride. It costs like a few bucks from the village across onto this little island, and you can rent bikes there and just, like, explore and hike or bike the island. That sounds amazing. So you're you're going to um, love Singapore. Yeah, I mean, I think just, like, the mix, like, I've been eating, like, um, you know, some, some Malaysian food recently, some Singaporean food, and, like, everything I taste, you know, 
a mix of Chinese and Malay and Indian, and it's just like too too good. Oh, one yeah. thing, one one question I have. So when you're going around, um, what kind of accommodations were you staying in? So you know, aside from like this, um, maybe influencer hotel, like when you're in like other places like Laos or Singapore, are you staying in hostels and Airbnbs, um, something else? Yeah. So it's funny. I actually did everything during this trip. I stayed in a hostel, an Airbnb, a five-star hotel, (laughs) uh, you know, everything in between. Um, and you know, to be honest, like one of my favorite, uh, accommodations was when I was in Bagan, Myanmar and I stayed in a hostel and, And that, but that part of the trip, I was alone, so it was it made more sense. Um, but you do, I did every activity that the hostel organized. I met a lot of people. I was just hanging out in the like lobby area, and they had like free pasta snacks, and so that was really fun. Um, I wouldn't like discount the hostel. I wouldn't stay in hostels the whole time, obviously. But I got a private room for myself, so like when I wanted quiet, I had it. Um, but there was also like a really fun. And there's something to be said about, like, they do a free walking tour where, you know, the guy makes money off the tips. And, like, you go on the tour and it's all organized and it starts in the hotel, in the hostel lobby. So I would say, like, if you were going to do no hostels, like, maybe think about doing it once. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, like, I like hostels usually. I think on this part of the trip, um, I'll probably be by myself. So I kind of like hostels unless, like, I have, like, an activity plan. Like, I'm going rock climbing and I just want to be, like you know, have a good night's sleep and get rest before I do that. Yeah. If I have nothing really planned, I kind of like hostels because, like, it's a great way to meet people, right? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say maybe, like, try it once, you know, if you weren't going to. Um, and just do the research on, like, hostel world. Make sure that it's, like, a legit hostel, ideally with, like, you know, people in their mid, late 20s rather than, like, you know, 19-year-old psychos. Um, that's, that's the thing. I'm always trying to avoid, like, I learned this once is, like, you know, I think, I don't know, maybe this would be more prevalent in Bangkok, I imagine, but, you know, I remember once staying in a hostel, I've stayed in so many great hostels in Europe, um, but one time I was, like, in a hostel in Barcelona, and I learned that's not a good city no. if you're not, like, 19 and, like, yeah. planning on just, like, getting wasted on, like, Jack Daniels. Like, don't stay at a hostel in Barcelona. Yeah, no, for sure. Don't do it in Barca. Um and then, and then, but the rest, like, so Vietnam is a good example of a place where you should stay at a hotel if you want, because it's so cheap. Mm-hmm. So you can get yeah. like, like we stayed in, in Hoi An at the Green Apple Hotel and it, it must have been something like ridiculous, like 20 a night or something insane. And like they did our laundry and they got us our motorbikes and they had free complimentary breakfast every morning. So it's like, you know, you could get a, a hostel for $3 and Airbnb for 8 but, like, at that point, spend 20 and you get, like, a three-star or four-star hotel. Um, yeah. So I would recommend, like, I would really recommend doing hotels for sure. Like, you know, not, like, uh, the a and not the Intercontinentals, but, like, you can do cheap but, like, good hotels. Uh, but I also did Airbnbs. Like, when I stayed in Luang Prabang in Laos, I, I had an Airbnb, so I had an apartment to myself with a view and a balcony and like this couple it was like a laotian woman and a french guy who met her while he was like backpacking in Laos, and, and like and they like run it and they just give me the keys and like her brother was my driver to the waterfalls and to all the things that i needed to do so you know like i just mix it up like i probably do more airbnb than anything else um, but you know, I would, I wouldn't be afraid to do a hotel at the right price as long as the reviews are good. And I wouldn't be afraid to try a hostel either. Super cool. Uh, very excited. 
Yeah, man, I'm excited I, for you. I, you know, one last question. I think this could be really relevant to your travel travelers. Yeah. You know, travel immunizations. You know, going to Southeast Asia. Do you like worry about that? Do you get any like checkups? Go make sure you have like all of your shots up to date, or is that something you know that wasn't a big factor for you? Yeah, it's funny. You're asking a guy who's like way more lax than the average person, especially yeah. like, you know when it comes to health. I can be much more of like a holistic guy. Um, although I do, you know, I'm not one of these like anti-vaccinating children type persons. Um, I have all my immunizations. Like I would, what I would do if you don't is like, I have a spreadsheet in Excel and I have it like every one and the date I got it and how long it's good for and when I need the next one. Um, you know, I've been to India twice. I don't want to like get bit by a mosquito and turn purple and just like fall into a ditch. Um, I want to make sure, you know, I have, uh, I think all the hepatitis ones, you know, I could pull it up, but go to either your primary care or even a walk-in clinic, just get the shots. Um, you know, I wouldn't go too crazy, like malaria pills. I did my first time in India because it was going to be a more rural trip, but like second time in India and this whole Southeast Asia, I did not take malaria pills and I did not see any reason I would need to. Um, another point that like, I would never find myself like talking about on a podcast, but bug spray was like my savior, especially in Vietnam. Like I never used to wear the thing. And like the first day I got bit a bunch, but then I, started using this off spray, which had DEET and like, I don't know how good it is for the environment or like inhaling it, but the stuff like worked like magic. Like if I, if I forgot to spray it, like I would just see bugs like on my leg biting me. And then the minute I started spraying it, they were all gone. So between bug spray and just, yeah, get the shots. But like, I didn't go too crazy. Like the ones that they like kind of recommend, but you don't really need, I never got those. I didn't, I did not get malaria pills. And then I also had like really nice, like light dry fit Nikes that did have sleeves. Um, but they were like very light, but it's like an extra, like you don't have to spray all your whole body with the bug spray. It's like extra protection. Cool. Last question. So India, I mean, <clears throat> we're like, I know this could be a whole conversation itself, you know, yeah. should, should India, you know, could that be a stopover destination, Mumbai or Delhi? Or, you know, is India like, you know, you want to make this a trip on its own? Well, it's a good question. And that's like the age old question that I ask myself. And the reason like, so like everyone is going to tell you it's a trip in and of itself. And, and it is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if I live that way and if I didn't make these like stopovers, like I, I made a stopover in Seoul, in, you know, in South Korea, I've made stop. I've made like two day stopover in Singapore. Um, you know, if I didn't make these stopovers, it, it would, I'd really be missing out on like at least a couple of days somewhere. Uh, my advice for you, if you can and if the flights make sense, would be to fly um, maybe like in and out of New Delhi or maybe into Mumbai uh, or the, yeah, Bombay, some people still call it, and then out of Delhi. Uh, the reason I say Delhi is because from Delhi you can get a guy to drive you to the Taj Mahal. Mm. Um, so did you, did you do that and like – like, what was that? Is that really far? Is it expensive to drive there if I'm by myself? Is it like, no, I know there's not much in the city, but the Taj Mahal is obviously, a, you know, a wonder of the world for a reason. Yeah. So Delhi to, uh, so Agra is the city where the Taj Mahal and the Agra Fort are located. It's about, it's probably like a good three and a half hour drive. Uh, again, like you got to just go YOLO and just do it. Like, I don't know how much, yeah. it, I don't know how much it costs, but it's like when I was in Beijing, I, that was, Beijing was another like three day layover I did once, but again, so glad I did it. And 
you know, to get, I only have like really one full day to like do stuff. And I had to get a, a tour guide and she had to get a van. I laid out like probably over 200 bucks cash for the day, uh, which can be a lot for some people. And I was just like, no, but like, I, I can either like go see the great wall or I can't. So like, is it worth a couple hundred bucks? Like for me, it was, yeah. I, I doubt it. Love- yeah. I doubt it's a couple hundred bucks to get to the Taj and back, but like, whatever it is, like, I think you just got to do it. And you could, if you want to save money, you could probably find a bus, you know, with other travelers to help you get there. So now I have to ask like one more question, you know, so many flights from like Singapore or Southeast Asia route through Beijing, you know, did you do the three day kind of special visa um, when you were there? And, you know, basically you're not really allowed to leave the Beijing area. Parts of the Great Wall are actually like within the distance though. Is that the visa you did or was it like part of a broader trip? So I, it's funny because like, so that trip was my first trip to Tokyo and I went to like Tokyo for a good week. And then I went to uh, Beijing for a couple days and then Hong Kong for a couple days and I flew home. This is how you travel internationally when you work at a hedge fund. Um, yeah. <laughs> you got to be back at work. I, uh, I actually got the, the full China visa. Um, I don't know how much more it costs than getting like a Beijing pass, but I'm glad I did because now I have a 10-year China visa that goes until like 2025 um, mm. just like in my back pocket. Like I now have India and China, like 10 year visas just like sitting in my passport. So, you know, for example, like when I was flying to Hanoi, um, I almost did a flight that had a layover in Guangzhou. Um, I think it's pronounced. And, mm. and like I was with a friend and he like didn't want to do the stop for a day. Like I definitely would have. And like on my next trip, I will, I love those, you know, it's like a free layover if you can do it. Um, so I like, so like I said, we didn't stop in that city in China, but like I could have, cause I have the visa. So I don't know how much it costs. I don't know if you plan to go back to China, but like if it's a, if it's a nominal difference or if it's not a huge deal, get the 10 year and then plant it in your passport. I actually had never even thought about that way, but like yeah. the idea of getting the multi, I actually just like hate visas. So the one I'm talking about is actually free, but basically it's like a transit visa. So right. you can only go to Beijing if it's like, you know, it's like a layover basically. Yeah. Um, and I like it cause like, I just have this like fear of like, cause you know, I'm always going somewhere. I'm going to Canada next month. I hate giving my passport to anyone. Well, go um, to, oh, because you're in Boston. Yeah, because in yeah. New York, I, I can just go to all the, the places myself. Um, maybe I'll just go. Did you, okay, maybe I'll have to do that. But yeah, no. Like, this for, like for Vietnam, I just I just went, I just went to the consulate in New York and it's like one Vietnamese woman and she just like put it in my passport for me and like for like $30 or maybe it was like 70 instead of like 150 with like the expedite services. I actually had a really good experience of no, of uh, not using them. And I'm really glad I didn't like with the Vietnam one. uh, I went at four o'clock on Friday. The place closes at five on Friday and the place was completely empty. Everyone, everyone's there on Monday morning at 6am, like in line, go like right before it closes, like on a random day. Um, And you could probably sneak in. The other thing was like, I shipped, I sort of like, so here's a mistake I made with visas for, for Laos or Laos, as some people call it. Um, I, I shipped my passport to Washington DC because Laos doesn't have like embassies or consulates like in New York. It's such a small country. Um, And I paid probably like 150 bucks at least for that whole thing. 
And then I get off the plane in Laos and it's like a guy with like, you know, a t-shirt on and it's like, you know, instant visa, 30 bucks. And I was like, dang. So (laughs) a lot of these, like, especially the Southeast Asian countries, you can pretty much do visa on arrival, um, for a lot cheaper than like whatever, you know, I paid. I did Vietnam myself, Cambodia, you can do the online visa for like 20 bucks. They give you a PDF, Myanmar's PDF. So if you can do the online PDF ones, they're usually a lot cheaper. Um, but that's kind of like, yeah, learn from my experiences. <laughs> no, that's, that's really great advice. I mean, visa always one of these things that like, you know, for me, just like, I want to make sure I get a hundred percent right before going to a spot. Yeah. So, but, yeah but, 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 but don't worry too much. Cause like from what I've seen, especially in Southeast Asia, like, there, it's not like, oh, Ben, you don't have a visa. Like, come into this jail cell and we're going to whip you. Like, yeah. like almost always I've seen, like, visa on arrival, like, backup plans. Like, obviously, like, we're both very, like, type A organized people that mm-hmm. are always going to have it in advance. But, um, you know, it, it, like, I was way more worried than I needed to be. Like, they were all very chill about it. Yeah, they, they just want their feed. That makes sense. Yeah, they just want their money. Yeah. Yeah, I know we all. Well, thanks again so much for taking the time to jump yeah, on this the podcast. Yeah, this has been great.